Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Lance, your host of Yesterday's Concert. Before we get this episode started, I want to take 25 seconds to tell you about my other show, Jam Journals. Jam Journals is a podcast that takes you on a journey through music history, featuring live performances from some of the most iconic concerts of all time. Each episode recounts a different concert experience through a dramatic narrative that brings the memories to life with vivid detail and emotion. Join us as we take a trip down memory lane of some of the most unforgettable concerts in recent history. Jam Journals is available everywhere you get podcasts. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I think that a lot of people probably get a sense of comfort from artists who provide that sort of escape. I think that that's why it's special to people and why it stands out and why we're seeing perhaps more of it comes to the forefront because it feels authentic. It feels real. It's probably because it is. I think people like that. (laughs) Welcome to Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode we talk to the Ruin Brothers. Henry and Rupert discuss how they use modern recording technology to create a classic sound on their new album, Ten Paces. Grab your earplugs for some technical recording talk. I'm here with the Ruin Brothers. Uh, Rupert and Henry Stancil. I'm really pumped to talk about your new album, but first I want to introduce each of you and kind of let you connect whose voice is whose. Hey, this is Henry. Uh, thank you for having us, Lance. Yep. Hey, I'm Rupert and I'm going to say I'm the younger brother. I think that's good either. <laughs> there we go. Often introduce me. Well, as is tradition on yesterday's concert, we like to start with a couple of icebreakers. Uh, so the first one, even though you guys were just telling me you moved to Louisville, we're still going to play this one because I think it's fun. We're going to do East Coast, West Coast, which is the better one. All right. So I know, Henry, you were on the East Coast. Rupert, you were on the West Coast. You know, we're bringing back the the the, the old feud. Which one's the better coast? Rue, what, what do you prefer? I think I know what you prefer. I mean, I've got to say uh, the West Coast for me personally because I love uh, – going out for hikes and walks and uh, when we're making the record and pretty much when we've made every record i've i've done that daily so um yeah it's the west coast for me i would say although perhaps spent more time in new york and the east coast living there 
I think I, I prefer the West Coast. And it's mm -hmm. only in terms of the fact that it's a bit of a slower pace out there. I mean, I'm being a little bit ignorant here saying that the East Coast is just New York City and the West Coast is just Los <laughs> Angeles. In terms of the entirety of the East Coast, there's obviously fantastic cities and towns and locations. But in terms of places that we've experienced and we can talk on with, um, you know, more clarity, I would say Los Angeles, the weather, the pace, um, yeah. the natural beauty. I, I really love, um, so yeah, West coast wins. <laughs> there we go. That, that I like it. Uh, so like we were saying, you, you've moved to Louisville, got a killer music scene, Louisville. What's something about the music scene that you've really didn't expect, but you've fallen in love with? Ah, the, well, I'm gonna give a little shout out to some to a a, a relatively new venue um, that is right in the heart of our neighborhood that we moved to in the Highlands in Louisville. There's a sort of a creative members lounge called the Monarch, and the the crew there, Mark, who who helped build this place up to what it is. Uh, has welcomed us with open arms as as now new locals and uh, introduced us to a wealth of just fantastic songwriters, performers, and it's it's been a refreshing like little gem. Um, mm. we did, I don't think either of the, either of us experienced a community like that uh, in London, in New York, in Los Angeles. And I think that's very special and it's very special what he's doing. Um, and it's building an audience uh, that really has a passion for um, listening to intimate live music and appreciating songwriters and performers in that kind of environment. Uh, so that's been my favorite discovery. And I think it's, it's super cool and it's very refreshing. Yeah, there's a lot of talent here, which um, surpasses... Uh, what I expected, you know, and it's it's really up my street in terms of the genre uh, most people play here. So, um, yeah, it's uh, a great scene for us. Okay, so next question. Uh, as I was telling you before, I'm in Memphis, and I know several of your influences have started their career in my city. Uh, so which would you rather record at in the height of their, their peaks at the respective studio of Stax Recording Studio or Sun Studio? Which would you have rather spent time recording at? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I am going to say Sun Studios mm -hmm. just because as teenagers, uh, as young teenagers, we were gifted, I think, by our, our uncle, our uncle Paul. Uh, he gifted us a Sun Studios uh, CD, well, a CD live from Sun Studios. It mm -hmm. had all these fantastic recordings on there. One in particular that really spoke to us was a Charlie Feathers number called Defrost Your Heart. And the fact that that came out of Sun Studios, I think it would be magic to be able to go to Sun Studios and even try and get close to something as cool as that with uh, with a, a recording. So if I, could, if I could record anywhere, I think all those stacks, you know, that it's a tough question, but yeah. I'd, I'd probably go. Tough, probably go <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, not for audio quality, but for vibe. I would say some studios. I don't know that that's uh, as you say. You know, we grew up listening to a lot of artists which recorded there. That and 
I think um, at the uh, fundamental level of what we do, we've been just heavily inspired by that studio's output. That's I, I'm with you. I would have chose Sun. I mean, Stacks put out so much great stuff, but it's just oh yeah. And that kind of leads into the next speaker because you know, as an Elvis fan, that just draws me in. But so the next question really is. What is the best era of Elvis's career in your in your opinions? <laughs> I mean, that's really tricky because you know he's he'd done great work all over the years, but I think that his early years, you know, that the fifties was such was such a good time, and I, I, there's so many songs there's so many songs from the 50s that I think we would cover in pubs and working men's clubs in the UK um, <laughs> as teenagers. I remember All Shook Up would be a song that was like the opener to our set almost every time. People love to hear Elvis. I mean, Elvis, obviously, he's a worldwide phenomenon. Um, but for me, I think it was the early years uh, of Elvis. I think that's that's what resonates with me and i find it exciting yeah i would uh, have to agree with with that the uh the 50s was a pretty exciting time for him and and in for music in general when he came out i mean his recordings were quite basic in in that early time but they, they had a a life to them almost an underproduced vibe which um you know really showed him off and his 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 band you know Scotty Moore was a big influence on me and you know some of the stuff they did with delay back then tape delay uh created cool sounds you know like on blue moon and stuff so uh mm -hmm. that was an inter interesting period for music on the whole but I think uh for Elvis's uh bringing Elvis to a center stage as a as like a pop star I think that was an exciting time I did also like his um his comeback special in the late 60s mm -hmm. Uh, that film concert or whatever, and uh, where you can see them all uh, do the little intimate part of the show where they just sit on chairs facing each other. I, I like that kind of vibe, that sort of uh, the intimate recordings and performances of, of Elvis, even though he, you know, he was larger than life. Those things weren't jazzed up in any way. Um, you know, the later stuff, as much as I love, you know, guitar players like James Burton as well, which, Played with him later on. Um, I think it's it's got to be the early early stuff for me. So my last one: Why is Marty Robbins' Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs a ten out of ten? <laughs> I think because uh, he did it in eight hours. Was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that, that's impressive. He yeah. must rehearse those songs tremendously. I know his band was very talented. I think the the bassist was an orchestrator or something, and. Uh, yeah, it has a great sound. That record, it's um, there's a fantastic reverb on the whole thing, uh, which I can only believe they just ran the whole recording, um, ran over the whole recording with like uh, by blasting it into a chamber or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There's some magic to that, and um, it, it's nice to hear. You know, uh, somebody sing some some songs which are like trail songs with with stories which have a little start middle and end as well so lyrically it's quite nice yeah no i i, I agree with you Ru. i think that um for me yeah it's kind of the stories it's again as well the sound of the record and the instruments used you 
what we tried to do with our our latest record, and it was a production choice, you know, predominantly made by Rupert, was much like there is almost a soundscape to this to the Marty Robbins record. Um, I feel like that is an element that you you don't hear so much in modern day music and production because I think people uh, are trying to just deliver their song and, and, you know, there's fantastic production out there uh, and there's all different ways that you can uh, approach a record and your singles and your music. But for us, like the Marty Robbins record did for us, it kind of put you in the space of Marty himself when he's singing those songs. You feel like you're there on that trail. And we wanted our record to create a visual image in their brain. So whether it's moving onto to our record here, like there's elements such as ricochets and claps of thunder and things like that. And although there's there's not really those like such significant elements within that Marty Robbins record, it's you know I got that feeling when I listened to that, and I think that's the feeling that we wanted to create with with our new with our new record. It's like he's in the desert at midnight, and um, although he doesn't include like gunshots and thunderclaps like we do, um, what we have in extra little bits of production like that, he has in lyrics. So he'll talk about like his big iron and stuff, you know, <laughs> in, in terms of uh, a gun or whatever, and uh, we'll make the sound instead. So, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of what a, kind of touching on some of the stuff that I wanted to get into because you know when I when I listen to your album I I think through like it's not like you 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 get labeled as like a western noir act and it's a little unfair because I think you're more than that I, I think you're much more than that in a lot of ways but you do evoke that west that classic western spirit in your songs and, and that's kind of the thing that I wanted to touch on is like a lot of people look at just like a guitar twang to make a pop country song, but really like the thing that kept coming back to me was like the reverb in the songs. That's one of the things that really stood out to me is like the reverb is creating a lot of that, that feel in your music. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about that. Reverb is essentially, uh, you know, you're emulating uh, a space or spaces mm -hmm. and um, that can exist uh, in terms of, you know, if you just place the microphones in a room and you're recording in a band, uh, you'll, you, you will, if you have the microphones far enough away from the instruments, pick up a certain room reverb. Well, what Marty Robbins recording has and what, you know, some old um, scores to the Westerns had was this added reverb afterwards, which uh, was in the early days in chamber reverb form and a little bit later in plate reverb form, we used both of those types of reverb on our record to expand the space, but not only that, to use those particular types of reverb to associate the space with those uh, early recordings and early scores. So. I, I think there's a dark quality to those reverbs, which um, sometimes may, may be out of place for modern recording artists if they want to make, say, pop music. But for the kind of thing we do, 
I think it helps transport the listener to different eras, um, which it's a little bit nostalgic. It adds that quality to the to the song. So, yeah, we uh, we love using reverb and experimenting with it. Uh, that being said, we basically only used a couple of different types and, and kept it simple. Give the album a continuity as well. To that, but to the point of the the use of reverb to sort of create the the space for the listener and to and to, and and what it does, as Rue said, certain reverbs and certain sounds will create this sort of more nostalgic feel and timeless quality and much to the things that inspire us when uh, we write our music and produce our music, often the source of inspiration for us, majority of our songwriting has come through film. I think for me, um, visually film gives me uh, like a launch pad for writing. When we write and when we record, we are inspired by things that typically have lasted the length of time. It's what's created an inspiration. It's what excites us most, these time, timeless qualities that you find in art, in cinema, in music over the decades. And I think that every choice that we make when it comes to the writing, the production, which you know encompasses the reverb on the record, uh, every element that we has inspired us Every is is considered when we're creating our own thing. So we, we want it to have those qualities and, the, and, and and those feelings. So kudos to Ru for doing the technicalities on on, on that. It's, it's not it's not that difficult. It, it, it's very fun. Like uh, just a, a couple points as well on the physicalities of of the kind of reverb we we use. Although we're using uh, plugins to generally plugins to create these. Um, spaces these and these vintage you know sounds you know it's all very you know plate reverb is actually a metal plate vibrating and chamber reverb is you know pointing a speaker uh, into a very reflective room and putting a microphone at the other end of it so you know we like that that sort of sound of you know it is emulating real uh, space or, or real materials and it's not like a, a digital we try to lean away from the digital sounding effects and i think that's what helps with that nostalgic quality too well i mean that's kind of when i was listening to you guys and i started thinking about it like there has been such i feel like and maybe i'm just imagining this but it feels like there has been such a resurgence of timeless classic vintage music i mean you start thinking about like all the people out there like Nathaniel Rateliff, Leon Bridges, Orville Peck, you know, Coulter Wall, Lake Street. I mean, there's so many, you could list a thousand names. Like, why do you think like that vintage nostalgic sound attracts people so much? I think that it's a familiarity that it builds for a listener and, and somebody that in a day and age that we live in now where we are fed just such a constant feed of a lot of the time it's kind of throwaway content some of it is brilliant and some of it is not and some of it is timeless and some of it is not <laughs> um but there's such an there's such a flood of just so much stuff that i feel and i can relate to it myself because when i consume things the things i'm drawn to 
tend to be this more nostalgic feeling. It reminds me of the things from my childhood and the things from my childhood being, you know, what my parents would, you know, the music my parents would play as, the films that they would show us, the books that they would read as, the art that they would show us. I think that a lot of people probably get a sense of comfort from artists like the aforementioned um, who provide that sort of escape. I think it is kind of an escape that those people are providing with their music and with the visual content that they create to accompany their music. I think that that's why it's special to people and why it stands out and why we're seeing perhaps more of it come to the forefront because it does, it feels authentic. It feels real. It's probably because it is. I think people like that. (laughs) You said exactly what I was going to say, touched on comfort because, you know, it's like you wouldn't want to sleep in a, a, a perfectly flat, hard bed. And I think that's what nostalgic, sorry, old sort of vintagey things tend to have imperfections. And uh, I think people are comfortable around imperfections um, to an extent. It it makes things a little more tactile. And and, um, in the audio world, I think uh, it crosses into that. I think also um, uh, it's nice to see this resurgence at the same time, though I know that artists you know, who were recording back in the 50s and 60s or even earlier, you know, they were always seeking perfection and it was the technology of the day which kind of held them back. So what we tried to do is take these beautiful sounds and textures from recording of that period, but we do try to use modern technology to bring out to bring it out to the best of our, our ability because um, it, it's brilliant now being able to do that new old sort of hybrid and um you know there's no tape quality de- deterioration the more you play it back you're not getting a loss of high end or anything so yeah we're able to preserve some extra detail uh with modern technology uh to really uh i think people have the ability now to really show off them old old sounds and that old equipment to to its very best if if you know recording engineers want to do that well, that's one of the things when I was listening to the new album, 10 Paces, uh, the song, The Fear, I don't know if it's a drum machine or what, if it's a live drummer or what, but they, it has that classic Sun Records, like clackety choo-choo rhythm to it, but it, it's done in such a modern way that it feels new, but it still has that familiarity that you were talking about earlier. Oh no, you're, you're fully on point there. That's, um, I think it's a, a 1930s drum kit, um, but uh, it's... Uh, a VST, so it's a virtual instrument. Um, we have uh, some fantastic software, and basically, somebody put in all the effort so we didn't have to to make this software of recording these very old classic drum kits with old microphones and um, and through old recording consoles. And then what we can do, and what we did for the fear, was essentially write in the drum parts. And um, then we could play it back using these these old sounds. So that is a 1930s drum kit, which you're hearing, but recorded in the present day and and arranged by us. And then obviously using modern software, we we affect it and um, 
you, you can do everything with that software. It, I think it adds another layer to creativity for us because it allows us the freedom to we've we've been in situations where we've a drummer playing the drum beat and for some instances that's cool and it really works but for us we've found time and time again that through our creative process having the freedom of having a kick drum from the 1930s at your fingertip to be able to play with the sound of that and place it just where you want to place it and it becomes almost an it, <laughs> it I don't want to say an unhealthy obsession, but it does become an obsession where it's sort of like, well, we can, we'll play with the rhythm uh, to the song. We'll play with the, with the drum beat. We'll play with all of these different elements until we find a, a pattern and a, and a, and a mold that just feels right. And that making this record, it's been, it was an amalgamation of those things. So it's interesting that you actually, that you picked that out and you recognized it. And I'm, I'm kind of glad you did because it kind of, it allows us to now talk about this process, which I think is, is cool. And it's kind of something that in the world of, of score, a lot of indie score makers or upcoming score makers do. They've, they've got the power of, of fantastic you know, databases of, of instruments to play with and, and mold. And it allows you to just be so creative with, with your, with the recording process. So it's something that we don't shy away from. And it's something that we kind of celebrate because it's kind of just, it's so fun. (laughs) At the same time, we, uh, we do limit ourselves. Like once we've the drum sound we like, we try to use it pretty much across the board bar a little bit of tuning here and there on the skins, but um, yeah, we have to limit ourselves because we could go on forever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, and it and it makes it sound, you know, um, consistent. And uh, so we, we once we find a, a a sound, we commit to it. And uh, I think the fear was one of the first we recorded. So um, when I was kind of reading the presser about this album and things, was there was a lot of mention to like the cinematics of it and things like that. And I know you guys have done, especially with the pandemic, you you did a lot of sound design, you did a lot of scoring and things like that. So I was just curious how much of, because I mean, and it kind of goes back to the Marty Robbins comments as well of like, how much of that experience during that time really influenced what you did on this album? Because I mean, there's definitely a, a, a space to this album. There is definitely like you are in a, environment as you listen to this can you talk about that yeah absolutely um music for film score whether it's whether it's song for film or whether it's score for film they're two slightly different beasts and they require two slightly well for in terms of for film they're 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 both trying to achieve the same thing which is a subtlety that just supports the the picture you're not trying to stand out too much so the difference when it comes to making a record like this and incorporating elements of score it was certainly something that over the pandemic when we got to do that sort of stuff it did sort of speak to Ru and I and and very much so to Rupert where it's like hey you know this was a lot of fun getting to experiment with with sound for, for score and why don't we try and make this cool amalgamation of score and song when it comes to our own music? It, we feel the, 
dynamically, it's so cool because as you say, it creates a space and there can be really gentle, subtle elements that, you know, sub, you, you, you're not even really consciously recognizing, um, but they all add to just this space in your head. So yeah, it definitely was something that helped inspire us with this record. Um, I'm thank I'm thankful for at least that element of the pandemic and <laughs> getting to getting to uh, play around and 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 have the opportunity to do that sort of stuff. It, it certainly did influence this. I would say as well when when you are just a duo, you you don't have to use say a drummer or a bassist or. A, keys player you don't have to include them um if they're not part of the band so you know your options are, are limitless so we tried to approach it with that kind of ethos of of sort of anything's possible and i think also a, a few artists of the uh of the past more in sort of like the swing genre uh like frank sinatra dean martin all those kind of people their songs were much more orchestrated even though they were for their day like the popular music you know everything was written out everybody had different parts and you know they did often try put put the audience in the space with them i know that is the case with the uh the musical calamity jane which i think came out in 1953 um where if you listen to the arrangement around the songs they do incorporate these western sort of motifs and and elements to um to build a soundscape so we're we're not the first to do it uh but we certainly uh um enjoy doing it and, and we and we haven't heard it in a while so no that's, that's really good and that's i mean you'll have to forgive my ignorance on this one but you know how much of this creating the space and creating an atmosphere of the songs is done in the songwriting process first done in the recording process. I mean, how much of it is studio versus pen to paper? Um, I think, well, all of it starts pen to paper. There's no mm-hmm. uh, doubt about that. It always, it always with us will be an idea and it'll start with typically like a, a, a melody hook, something that, uh, you can't get out of your head and maybe like just a phrase and, and we build out from that it's like a lot of little ripples it's like oh, oh i thought of this great phrase or this phrase came to mind or whatever oh and immediately your head goes to a melody for it and then you've got that melody and you're like okay cool phrase cool melody that's cool okay what else do i need to build this and then it's like i think it's like somebody making a sculpture with like a little uh, a little chisel and a little hammer and i think that's the way that we go about building with like a little chisel, a little invisible chisel and hammer uh between ourselves and often you know often it's a case where you know we'll do the these ideas will come separately it's not often that we are physically both together and we've both been inspired by something we both sit down to like write something together and so to that it feels you know, it feels like a very organic process from the start, which is really nice. Rupert will come to me, I'll come to him, and then the production will follow that. And typically the production will be sparked by Rupert, production element ideas. It's something Rupert's passionate about and really understands very well. 
technically he's much more sound than me in that respect. I know what I like and I know what I like to hear <laughs> and what I think sounds good, but the proficiency that Rupert has when it comes to engineering and producing, uh, that really helps take the early form of the creation, the songwriting, which is crucial. It's something we learned in our process on our first record with Rick Rubin when we came to, when it, before we started recording, before we started putting down any of the songs, as Rick said to us, he said, you know, the most important thing is the songwriting. It comes before anything else. If the mm -hmm. song is not a good song, you can dress it up all you want, but it will never be a good song. So you have to get the songwriting right first. And that's something that has stuck with us ever since that process. And it's something that we always focus on first. So it's always songwriting followed by production. We did make, we did have some uh, intentional choices, which we made to get across a bit of a Western and Americana sort of genre and association within the fundamentals so for instance on hi-o our song hi-o in the chorus the chords there um we were thinking you know when we we're writing it like what sort of chords did they use uh for these western s scores although they often didn't have lyrics in them the arrangement did make you know chords and uh so uh that is an example of one of the songs where at its fundamentals it does have western chord movements in it you know we kind of had the concept of the western sort of album early on so um we did sort of move certain elements around to to emphasize that because we just loved the genre and it appealed to us very much so in the writing as henry says in the fundamentals uh, there are choices made to to get it on the right path, um, to give it sort of a Western sound. And um, yeah, I mean, you can you can do it in production to an extent, but, you know, it's um, like uh, writing any song and putting jingle bells in the background and calling it a Christmas song. It, it, it can't always work. So um, I do think at the fundamental level, choices there do have a big impact on, on the final outcome. Yeah, mm. we were kind of obsessed with that. We we watched time and time again the uh, the movie The Night of the Hunter. Uh, <laughs> we were watching that over COVID, and uh, I think you go through you go through these like moments where you get inspired by something, and that's what helps inspire what you make. And I think that's kind of how we've always worked. Henry, I want to go back to something you directly said, and Rupert, you alluded to it. I've been fascinated lately with melody, just the concept of it and hearing it and kind of learning more about it. And, and you know, when I when I've read about interviews with you guys, you you're pretty open admitting that you love melody and you're you're both good at it. And I will firmly agree that you both are very talented melody uh, creators. So it's a two part question. So it's where do you think you developed the skill for melody and what inspires melody in your life when you're writing songs now? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh that's uh that's interesting it's not been no no one's ever really posed that to me so i think that from our childhood it stemmed very early from that because a lot of the music that our dad would play for us growing up although he would play like albums he would often be playing songs in the house that were 
these hit songs from all of these different artists. Like there was a lot of compilation albums, like greatest hits albums that we would be listening to growing up. Yes, there was, you know, classic albums that we listened to, but there was a lot of greatest hits stuff. And a common pattern amongst all of those songs was there's typically a great lyric in there. The melody is infectious in a way where you hear it once or twice and then it's in, it's in your head. And so many times as a kid, I would get obsessed with a chorus or a, just a, a line or a lyric. And it was often due to the melody and the combination of the, the words, the vowel sounds, the placement of the words within the melody line. And I think that that is something that is really cool to me and something that really, you know, I like to focus on when I'm, when I'm writing, because if it was cool to me as a kid, I hope it would be cool to somebody else, you know, if I can, can find that same quality. And so in our teenage years, we would be playing these songs by Elvis, by Roy Orbison, by Chuck Berry. And, and a lot of these songs, the melodies were just so good. And we were singing these melodies week in, week out to earn money to help our parent, parents pay rent and to like get by. And so week in, week out, just for, our, for many of our formative years, we were always singing these songs with just great melody lines. So naturally, when it came to writing songs for us and writing melody lines, it was something that just we naturally felt had to have like an importance. It had to be like a key focus point within our songs. And something with Rupert's sort of like, with Rupert's classical background, playing classical guitar growing up, Rupert knew how to achieve those melody lines in a way that, that made them hooky because he understood how to, how to write them. Um, he would, you know, between us, we would break them down and that's how we would build them ourselves. So that's kind of, uh, it's always just been a thing that we liked. And so I think it's a thing that we always focus on when we're, when we're writing. I think it's probably the predominant thing in our writing, the melody line. I think a lot of songwriters owe it to what they listened to growing up. Uh, there's certainly a psychology behind, you know, writing a melody and why it appeals to people. Nobody can sort of quite put the the finger on it. And, you know, it tries, you know, people try to quantize it in terms of like, you know, it has to have repetition or take it up an octave or whatever, you know, so you can give it these rules, but I can only um, theorize that these uh, rules like repetition are again, to develop familiarity. So whatever you listen to as a child, there's a familiarity towards those kind of melodies, which we we lean into when, when we're writing. And I would say that because as Henry says, you know, listen to greatest hits albums, that's got a wide appeal. So um, it's very kind of you to say that, you know, we're great melody writers, but um, I don't know, maybe it's, it's just the case that uh, we, we write our melodies like, you know, the songs we grew up listening to, which had a, a wide appeal. You're saying that, but like bullet blues, like I, I've, I've only heard it a handful of times and it's already stuck in my head. The earworm is there. I mean, it's firmly been planted. So, I mean, you can downplay it some all you want, but like it, it really, you guys do have the touch. Uh, I mean, it is very apparent in your music. Thank you. One thing I, I may take us completely off course going here, but I want to, I'm curious, uh, 
because I've heard it from other artists and I experienced myself. So you guys grew up on vintage music. I'm assuming we're around the same age. It, I'm 34. Uh, how old are y'all got? You may yeah, be younger right, than 33. Andrew. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so okay. Old so we're, yeah, we're right there. So, I mean, like I, I grew up on Elvis, like, I, and it's not an exaggeration. There was literally five years of my life where that was the only thing I listened to before middle school. And then I transitioned from Elvis to classic rock. And it kind of seems like you guys kind of have a similar lineage in terms of artists and eras. What was it like growing up being fans of that music? Because it's not popular. I mean, for our age, like it's not <laughs> popular. It's not cool at all. Yeah. By most standards. What was it like for you guys growing up? Yeah, I totally, uh, I sympathize with what you're saying because I think I used to feel, and I'm sure Rupert used to feel like amongst our peers at school at like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, you know, those formative years, those years where kids are cruel. <laughs> they, and and you, if you're not like you five years of Elvis, we the same sort of deal. Um, and while everybody else was listening to, and don't get me wrong, I enjoy songs from all these artists, but when other kids were like listening to Blink 182 and some 41, and mm. who I love, but while those were sort of like popular artists, the Spice Girls, you know, mm. Dre, Eminem, all of these like, pop culture phenomenons, Britney Spears, all of these things, although we, we were aware and, and you'd listen to it and then it wasn't something that was the, like the, the, the key element that you were raised on. It wasn't, it wasn't it. And I remember it being, I would have a bit, it, I would feel a little embarrassed about loving that music or, or, or like, trying to tell my friends about it or play that music or be playing those kind of songs. It felt like it wasn't cool. It felt like, or at least amongst my peers, it wasn't cool. But then we were at such a young age, like 11, 12, 13, 14, playing in these like very hard environments. We were going into like very grown up adult working men's pubs and clubs um, in our hometown. Before, before the smoking ban like in these smoky <laughs> just the, 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 you know where like very adult things were going on and we were experiencing that and we would play the music that we loved that we were raised on and those people loved that everyone loved it yeah but they were an older audience so we always connected with this older audience even as as teenagers as kids we had uh, we related to them they they were slightly confused though. I remember they they would often ask us like, well, "How do you know this song? And uh, why are you playing this kind of music? I mean, it's great, but uh, yeah, yeah, how come?" And so you know, get asked this question a lot. But you know, we we have to give uh, a little bit of credit as well to some of the local bands which played in our hometown. Uh, granted, they were a lot older than us. There was one band called the Bad Lads, and they had been around since the sixties. And they were then in their 60s, 70s. They'd invite us to their, their rehearsals. We, we live close to the, the lead singer of that band. And so we'd sit in and we'd always, you know, be amazed at, at how much it, it sounded like a CD, we used to say, compared to the bands at school who were, you know, the, the kids who were making bands there. So we would naturally try and be like these older people who to us sounded a lot better and uh, you know the north of the UK where we're from, 
I think one of the reasons they love that old American music is um, I do know the lead singer of that band, The Bad Lads. He told me a story where, you know, uh, an American record, whether it be by Elvis or somebody, would would come out, be released, and they would drive to Liverpool, which is about, you know, four hours from, from where we grew up. They would drive to Liverpool just to get that record because that's where the American records were shipped into. So uh, there is a big love for that that kind of music amongst the older people in the north of the UK. And as Henry mm-hmm. says, that people we were hanging around with and and uh, playing music in front of. So, but it was definitely weird around people our age. And I, I think between and it's you're in America listening to that. We're in the UK listening to that. I know, like sometimes. Even folks that we come across in America will be kind of confused as to why, like, oh, you guys are from the UK, but you you like this sort of like country music and this this you like this Americana genre and you like all these artists and it's like, well, while that is unusual because we're an ocean apart, it's not that unusual because our parents grew up on it our hometown was hooked on it and we were raised on it. And so it, it's kind of cool to us that we've managed with our music to carve out this this life where we get to make music that we love, uh, that celebrates, you know, everything that we were influenced by growing up. Um, so it just feels like a very, although a weird journey uh, and a weird sort of, childhood and teenage years listening to and being influenced it's kind of come full circle for us now and it just feels just feels like that's how it should be (laughs) no that that's actually i feel like that's because it's come full circle i mean that again my mind was coming back to marty robbins and just the familiarity aspect of it i think is part of why younger kids are going to it now i mean it's so weird to see like I follow all these different record pressing plants and things like that and labels. And like, I feel like that, that album's always getting repressed. It's always getting some new like color variation or something. And, and I'm like, who's buying this record? <laughs> and, I mean, it's, it's a lot of kids apparently like younger generations are buying that album because there's things on that, that there's like you were saying earlier, like they're searching for the real, they're searching for that, but it's also just a lot of themes that are universal across generations that people can connect with. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like we've come full circle in this conversation and this is a great place to wrap it up guys. Uh, This was, (laughs) this was really fun. Uh, Rupert, I really enjoyed all of your technical talk. I I don't know much about recording, but uh, I could could listen to that kind of stuff all day, man. It was killer. (laughs) Uh, Henry, it was a pleasure, man. I I love, I love that you could feel my pain. Talking about yeah. growing up an Elvis fan. Uh, so this, this was really great, guys. I'm really grateful that I got to speak with you guys. Uh, Ten Paces, by the time this is released, uh, the album will be out for everyone to hear. Fantastic album. I thoroughly enjoy it. I think it's a great evolution of your sound. I think it's a uh, another great album in your lineage. Uh, so good job, guys. Uh, I can't wait for the world to hear it. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and just to echo what you said, we really appreciate you having us on, and thank you for you know asking us such thoughtful questions. It you know I, I this is what doing this is about, and I love it. And so thank you. Yeah, it's great to be able to tell people about it because like more people about it because at the moment I'm just boring my wife and and Henry. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm glad I'm glad you got to burn my ears up tonight talking about it <laughs> instead of belaboring your poor wife any longer. I'm glad we got to do this exactly. tonight, guys. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys. Awesome. Yes. Thanks. Bye-bye. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for listening to another episode of my show. For more live music podcasting, check out our other show, Jam Journals. If you're feeling kind, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and check us out on all the social media platforms. Email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com or visit our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. So until next time, give us a subscribe, tell your friends, and most importantly, take care of your shoes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.